that man back to the hospital. Number six was about to talk. Don't you believe it? He'd have died first. You can't force it out of this man. He's not like the others. I would have made him talk. Every man has his breaking point. I don't want him broken. He must be won over. It may seem a long process to your practical mind, but this man has a future with us. There are other ways. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, the faceless and prudish government censor who didn't think these episodes belonged in the series. My co-host is Guy, who I hear has been rather disharmonious lately. Hello, Guy. (laughs) Hello, Ron. Got anything to confess to our audience today? I have your script right here for you to read. (laughs) I confess that I aim to misbehave. (laughs) <laughs> well, that might cause you some trouble with your social standing. We'll see. <laughs> so today we're going over the episodes that I dropped from my ordering of The Prisoner so that Guy can determine whether they really don't belong or whether actually we should find a place for them. At the end of all this, we'll do a revised order based on what we've learned watching through all the episodes of the show in this manner. And now, Guy, you already know I'm not a fan of any of these episodes, at least as a part of this show. It doesn't mean I don't necessarily like the episode. I just don't think it fits in in what we're doing here. But you can't let that sway your decision. You must be a free man. (laughs) So now the question is, are you playing my game or McGowan's? We shall soon see. (laughs) And I know the answer, but I won't tell it just yet. (laughs) So on to our first of the, the Dishonored episodes. Dance of the Dead. (laughs) This episode was produced fourth, and it was broadcast as the eighth, which I think actually doesn't make a lot of sense. People often place it as the second episode of the series. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, as we'll see, about him saying he's new and everything. McGowan considered this a canonical episode. I think he thought of this as a really, really important part of the series. Obviously, given that I didn't bother to include it in my ordering, I do not. So let's see who's right, the genius creator or the uppity podcaster. (laughs) Now, I will say right up front, I do appreciate this episode has the only female number two who is announced as such up front and who we see and hear in the early sequence. In every other story where there's a female number two, they were actually a scheming woman, you know, untrustworthy woman exercising her wiles on number six. And we only found out at the end of the episode that they were number two all along. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, her intro dialogue with number six is, I just have to say, it's half-assed and I'll put it in here. Where am I? In the village. What do you want? Information. Whose side are you on? That would be telling. We want information. Normally, the actors or the voice actor who did most of them, you know, really put some work into that intro dialogue uh, with number six. And, and you know, it's like, what do you want? Oh, we want information, information, information. You know, <laughs> it's really <laughs> dramatic. And she's just like, we want information, information. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's just her personality. <laughs> 
We're going to try to be a bit brief in these episodes, and I'm just going to, especially for this particular one, you know, I'll talk about some of the themes that go through it and everything, but I'm not going to walk through it scene by scene um, or line by line as we kind of usually do. One of my complaints with this episode, I'm not sure it's fair to say it's a complaint. Almost everything we see in this episode is a duplicate of things we see elsewhere. And I think this was probably written very, very early. So at the time it was written, it probably wasn't a duplicate. But I just think that many of the things that are duplicated from this episode to other stories were done better in those other stories. So we start out and number six is being conditioned into sleep. They put equipment on his head and they're doing some kind of conditioning, as happens to him about every third episode. (laughs) They say he should never go to sleep. (laughs) And the new twist, though, is that the person doing this to him and watching it on a screen from the control room is a doctor, number 40, who is doing this apparently dangerous conditioning without number two's knowledge because he wants to speed things up and get results. So unfortunately for this rogue doctor, his effort fails and he may have come close to damaging number six's brain and number two shows up and she is unhappy at what he's been doing. And one of the many echoes of other episodes, she says, I don't want him broken. He must be won over. And this is a common refrain in particular from Leo McKern's number two, which Mm -hmm. again, I think he did much more effectively. One of the ways we know this is a very early episode is everyone's constantly explaining to number six how the village works. And he declares loudly at some point, I'm new here. (laughs) At another point, he says, I'm a recent arrival. So they're making it very clear Mm. that he's new. But unfortunately to me, it's just disjointed. It feels like a pilot episode that you wouldn't actually broadcast. One thing I do like is there is a black cat that is a recurring character in the episode, which is cool. And possibly the same cat that shows up in many happy returns. Yeah, that, uh, that was something that as soon as I saw it, I, I thought of that because this, aside from that episode, this is the only time we've seen a black cat or any cat that I can recall. Right. Right. So I would assume it's supposed to be the same one or else. Maybe one of those ambiguous twins, you know, like we had the electrician and the gardener (laughs) and so forth. And unusually for the show, number six really takes a liking to this cat and he feeds it and gives it milk and takes care of it. And then we'll see, it turns out to be number two's cat. But I actually think that of all the things I don't like about this episode, I wish they had kept the cat theme in other shows. I think it would have really Mm. worked well. For at least every, it didn't have to be there in every episode, but let's say every few episodes, it was there as his pet and he liked it. And it was kind of the one thing he had to himself, which would actually give number twos uh, a new thing to screw with him on. Right. I mean, if the Mm -hmm. cat suddenly disappeared or they were doing things to it or whatever, he would probably take that very badly. So, so (laughs) I have this little, uh, you know, what they call a headcanon thing where I'm rewriting the entire series and the cat is a major character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that would have been a neat way to go. In that case though, he might've taken the cat with him when he built his raft. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who yeah. knows how things might've gone differently. <laughs> so it turns out that number two's plan to crack number six apparently evolves around a carnival and a ball that they're going to be having the next day. And where everyone is going to be in period costume and do dancing and such. And they apparently do this once a year. 
And number two tells number six that he has to choose a date for the event. And she offers him several pretty flight attendant types. <laughs> and when I say flight attendant types, it's not just that they're sort of stereotypical 60s flight attendant good looking, but they actually are wearing those sort of, I don't know how to describe them, the hats. They're uh, sort of, mm. don't, I don't know, what would you, what would you, uh, kind of, kind of columns on their head, which very much looks like, you know, airline stewardess hats of the time. You know, I didn't, I didn't really notice them much. I noticed the one woman that he did end up picking. <laughs> I guess uh, that tells you, tells us a little <laughs> bit about your taste. Okay. So yes, uh, you know, she offers him these very pretty flight attendant types, but there at a nearby table, there's a rather dowdy woman. And so he chooses her instead. She doesn't seem to have all, much choice in the matter. And if I remember right, is her button is black. Like most of the people have a white button with the bicycle on it, but hers is black, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. That is unusual. It's shown up every once in a while, but it's been kind of random. So I don't know if there's any particular meaning to that, but yeah. And it's hard even in the moment not to assume that number two knew that's exactly what he'd do, right? Instead of choosing the pretty woman, he'd choose the dowdy woman who yeah. happened to be sitting there. And even number six in the moment seems to realize this because he says to the, I'm calling her the dowdy woman, which is unfair. It's just that she is dressed in much more yeah. brownish and, you know, downplayed clothing than these very brightly lit pink <laughs> flight attendant types. Right. And number six says to her when he sort of chooses her as his date, he says, number two wants you to go. Am I playing her game or yours? <laughs> so, hmm. so he knows. Yeah. Yeah. And we will find out that this woman is number six's observer. So it turns out her job all day long is just to watch number six and, and see what he's doing and report on him, which makes sense in the context of the village. But this is a concept that doesn't show up again in any other episode. So they seem to have dropped it mm -hmm. after, after this. Yeah, the hidden cameras are the observers mostly, I think. Yep. And, and there's also a bit of a... Uh, time-sharing question because, well, they say later that they don't observe everybody in the village, but they do observe the troublemakers. But she's using the big screen in the control room to watch him. So mm. <laughs> there's only so much observing that could be going on at any one time if you have to use the big screen. I kind of envision this line of observers waiting for the other person to get out of the way so they can observe their guy. <laughs> Well, they, maybe they get smaller screens because we see in the next episode they have closed circuit TV. And again, this is just one of the things where it feels like they're just throwing things in that we see in, in more cohesive ways in other episodes. He just decides to leave his apartment at night and run along the beach to escape. Number two is watching him do this. And this is, again, uh, just something that shows this, I think, was written before most of the episodes. Normally... Every number two that sees number six trying to escape calls an orange alert. Mm -hmm. And then everybody, you know, snaps to their stations and does their thing. And one of the things that always happens with an orange alert is that Rover shows up. Right. right. Well, she just pushes a button. She doesn't call an orange alert. She just pushes a button. <laughs> Rover shows up mm -hmm. and follows him along the beach until he's tired out. And one of the things that, you know, I think just shows that the, they hadn't quite figured out things yet with this episode is I have been extremely impressed with their handling of Rover, right? It's just a balloon and they're pulling it along with a string, but I never see the string and it's really powerful and it's really mm -hmm. scary. And in this episode, and particularly this sequence, 
I see the string every time. You see exactly where they're pulling it. You see exactly mm-hmm. what's going on. And it just, <laughs> to use the word, it deflates the power of Rover. <laughs> it, go, it, it transforms Rover from an object of terror to a saggy balloon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I I didn't react quite as harshly as you did, but I did notice, uh, I didn't see the strings themselves, but I saw right. on the bottom of Rover near the ground or near the beach, uh, I saw where he was kind of poking out a little, not not real sharply, but sharply enough yeah, that you could it. was clear it. that's where I mean, it was being pulled, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, in theory, maybe they could have used more threads and had more attachment points and, like, distributed the pressure. I, I don't right. really know how all the physics works. In well, I just feel like, an, even though this wasn't filmed first, although, you know, I think as we've talked about before, it was several weeks into filming before Rover was figured out. It just feels like they didn't know how to film it yet. You know, I think in yeah. all the other episodes, they understand, okay, we need to use these certain angles so that you don't see that. It just seems like they didn't know what they were doing yet in this episode. Yeah. So in his running around on the beach and eventually getting tired, he sort of falls asleep. And when he wakes up, he sees a corpse that has washed up on shore, which basically looks like a duplicate of him. We never see its face, but it's basically the same clothing and hair. And number six searches the corpse and he gets a little portable radio and a wallet off the body. One thing I noticed in this, which was just interesting, is usually, even though, you know, they filmed so much not in Port Marion, right? I mean, they they Mm -hmm. only did a very small amount of filming in Port Marion, but they really did use the Port Marion beach. And we get to know it really well and we know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. We know what the sand looks like and, and what the shoreline looks like. Right. This is, I think, the only time in the show when he sees this corpse and is dealing with it that they don't use the Port Marion Beach. It's clearly some beach in the UK, you know, probably close to London for filming purposes. It has an entirely different, the mud is different, the shoreline is different, the rocks are different, and it just really stood out because they've been so consistent about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I spotted that too, and I... I figured it was just part of Port Marion that we didn't usually see in the other episodes, but I, but there was like a little short cliff that didn't look at all familiar. At the very least, it's an angle we don't normally see and probably <laughs> just another place entirely. Right. Story-wise, you know, number six eventually gets in trouble for having this radio he found. And what he does with the corpse, though, is he puts it in a cave and then he comes back later and he puts his own papers into the wallet along with a note, he steals a life preserver and he uses it to slip it around the corpse's shoulders so that it'll float with, you know, his personal information in the wallet and he puts it out to sea. And then we're at uh, the carnival ball. So, you know, people from the village are dressed up in period costume and number two offers him actual alcohol. As, uh, As we've seen in other episodes, you know, everything is non-alcoholic, even if it's called vodka or whiskey or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, his, his response to her here is what really tells me that this is not canonical and is a very early one because he says, I rarely drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for someone who rarely drinks, he has spent all the other episodes complaining about having non-alcoholic <laughs> drinks. Yeah. And they're actually, you know, you had mentioned they were still working things out in this episode. 
This, I think, might be intended to be alcoholic drinks because they're talking about the vintage of it at one point. Oh, yeah. I think she's, she's offering him real alcohol in this special case. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, I rarely drink, where every other episode he would be delighted to have actual alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's also a case where we talked to before in one of their episodes about whether the music was actually playing during the scene. And in this case, you know, they're playing some pretty sedate classical music. And I'm pretty sure that music was not there when they were filming because most of the people dancing are dancing to completely different tunes. <laughs> yeah, it could be, but it could also be that there's just a lot of bad dancers there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I just, I feel like this goes along to me with the Rover string thing, et cetera, where it just feels like, oh, they didn't quite have it worked out and they, it's just a little sloppy on the directing point. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, you're the, the, the doyleist interpretation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I just feel like they hadn't had it all worked out. And that's why you do like a pilot episode, right? Is yeah. So if this were a pilot, it wasn't the pilot. They did it like fourth, but if this were a pilot, it'd make complete sense. Cause they just hadn't figured out a bunch of this stuff yet. Yeah. So number six slips out of the carnival ball and impersonates an employee by putting on a coat, which happens to have its button and number. So if somebody was being very careless by leaving their button behind and he intercepts a termination order for a colleague that he saw earlier in the episode, a guy named Dutton. The termination order is neat because the first thing I thought of was, boy, they used a lot of toner to print this, <laughs> whatever they used in. Xerox machines back in the 60s because it's all black and the text is white in the middle. So it's, yeah. it's striking. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I, I liked it. It was a nice little bit, but you're right. <laughs> For those of us who were used to dealing with those sorts of things, you would run out of black ink very quickly <laughs> if you're using <laughs> black as your background color. While he's impersonating this employee, he wanders around and he ends up in the morgue where they've got, you know, the drawers where they put the bodies. And he opens a drawer and finds the body that he'd put out to sea. And number two shows up and tells him they're going to release the body again, but this time with number six's information, so the world will think he's dead. And if this, we don't see if this actually happens. If it did, it, again, it's not consistent with the rest of the show because of all the times that he gets back to London and everything, and they don't have some idea that he, you know, died or they'd found a body or anything. So we we never really see a connection to this point, even though what number two is saying they'll do is entirely realistic for the, you know, especially coming out of World War II. We, we talked about this, uh, well, <laughs> in an episode uh, with someone who's that's going to air months and months from now about how during World War II, both sides were doing all sorts of things to fool each other, including things like taking a dead soldier and putting misinformation on them and putting them mm -hmm. in the water in the hopes that they would be found. So this is a very realistic scenario. Oh, yeah. And back at Carnival, it turns out number six is the entertainment for the evening. He's on trial. And this has echoes of the final episode Fallout, you know, where there's the whole trial and jury and everything. <laughs> In this case, the jury is are three people dressed as the Queen, <laughs> Nero, and Napoleon. And he's being judged for having that radio that he found. Yeah. Which is just really an excuse. They, if it wasn't the radio, they would have come up with something else. Yeah. Just and he never really got anything out of the radio. He just heard some random broadcasts. There is some weird text on there, but it never comes to anything. 
Right. So as, as part of his defense, number six calls in his colleague Dutton as a character witness. So number two goes and drags him out and he's dressed as a fool. And it's clear that the additional measures that almost every episode they talk about, whether they can do them to number six or not, well, they've been done to Dutton and his mind is gone. He's useless. Yeah. And we, we did see him functional earlier in the episode, yeah. so we know that something's happened. Yep. And so number six is sentenced to death to be carried out by the people. <laughs> and the people are happy to do this, and they immediately start chasing him. Yeah, he, he, he starts taking some steps away, uh, and it looks like he's just going to slip out, and then all of a sudden they just start chasing after him and i will say it is a pretty interesting visual because you have all these people dressed up as clowns and queens and etc and running (laughs) down this hallway after him so that was kind of cool and he eludes them and he finds what is apparently number two's personal little room we've never seen this before we never see it again and he finds a, a teletype in the room spitting out messages presumably, I mean, this doesn't seem to be a computer like the general. It's just a teletype, probably the Hmm. communication source between the village and, you know, their masters. So he pulls out a bunch of wires from the machine to stop it, and it stops. And number two shows up in the room, and he says, you'll never win. And she says, then how very uncomfortable for you, old chap. And as she laughs for a long time... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the teletype springs back to life in spite of him having ripped out its guts. So he just has no control over this universe. And the episode is over. Yeah. And honestly, when his face, you know, that whole thing where his face comes up and then bars come over, I was shocked. I'm like, oh, it's over? And it's like, <laughs> and I was not satisfied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually, after, after watching this, I actually looked on the internet for some, uh, uh, you know, recaps of the episode or analyses of it, uh, because there was, uh, I enjoyed watching it, but then when it ended, I felt like I didn't exactly know what the heck was going on. Um, <laughs> and I, there were two actual, two different blog posts I found that had two different theories on that teletype. One of the theories was that it was sending the news of number six, number six's death, alleged death back to civilization. The other theory was that it was generating the text that was used for the cryptic radio messages that he had been listening to earlier. So both interesting theories, but neither one of them really makes the ending that much more satisfying. The the ending just kind of doesn't quite hit the mark, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've already said it, but I'll, I'll reiterate to me, this just feels like a pilot where you try a bunch of stuff out, you figure out what works and doesn't, and then you don't put out the pilot, (laughs) you do it again for real. And they, it seems to me like they mined this story for many concepts that show up in superior episodes. So to me, this becomes repetitive and even almost spoilery. As we said, I would have loved for them to keep the black cap. That's really the only thing from the episode that that i'm fond of Mm -hmm. and my i toned it down i didn't read all these but my original notes for this episode 
read like a cry for help or a suicide <laughs> note. <laughs> and it would be appropriate if the last note was arg, you know, written in blood and trailing <laughs> off the page. <laughs> so, so that was my feeling. But now on to your decision. So regardless of my feelings on the matter or that my body may be found floating in a lake tomorrow, <laughs> should this episode be included in the official ordering? Well, there are a few different angles that you could go with that. Is <laughs> if we're going by what we used during the first season of Doctor Who, which was would if your friend shows up unexpectedly, would you say, sit down and watch this? Now, that would be a no for me. <laughs> because this is it if it baffled me, chances are most of my friends would similarly be baffled by it. But on the other hand, I enjoyed a lot of the stuff that's in the episode. And so I'm tempted to say it should be in the official ordering because it's a series that we really only have 17 episodes of. And for me, I like seeing what's going on in the village and what's going on with number six. Um, and, you know, if, if I get an ending that kind of doesn't really send me off with a bang, I'm I, I can live with that if I've enjoyed the journey, so to speak. You know, I, I hey. and I did. I, I I found you said that you got bored at points during the show, and uh, I would guess that's because you already knew the anticlimax that was waiting in store for you. Because not having seen it before, I uh, I, I was interested throughout the whole hey. thing. So I would say. Yeah, I would include it in the ordering, but if you really want to leave it out, I wouldn't be too hard on you for it. <laughs> hmm. Interesting challenge, right? <laughs> well, so here's what my my feeling, you know, because I have a, a very different feeling about the next episode that we're going to talk about. Mm hmm my feeling is this adds nothing new, you know, except the cat, <laughs> everything we've seen done better elsewhere, you know, as we both agree, it has a kind of unsatisfying ending. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it, well, it, if you want to push for it, but I, my thing would be no, knowing that I'm, I'm definitely more, uh, receptive to other episodes we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's new actors that we hadn't seen and won't see uh, again, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm, it's it's really, I mean, the the whole idea of an official ordering is really kind of, uh, you know, it's it's not something that I'm losing sleep over <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, really, if if I as long as I saw Arrival first and the last two episodes last, I mean, the ones in between. Uh, you could shuffle them up however you like, pretty much as far as I, <laughs> ultimately, as far as yeah. I care. I well, know, here, I know you take some pride in having put thought into it. Right. Uh, okay. Well, here, here's my suggestion. Let's go through the rest of the episodes. And then, as we said, we'll kind of work out a revised ordering based on our experience. And let's see if this can survive the cut <laughs> when we're taking all of these <laughs> into account. All right. The council chamber have considered your case, number 93, and already there are signs of disharmony in your behavior. You appear to be a reasonable man, but there is plenty of evidence showing your unwillingness to work for the community. The court has a busy morning, and there are several cases waiting to be dealt with. Number six is seriously in need of help, and we want to do something for 42. 
She appears to be in a permanent state of depression, always in tears. It is your clear duty, number 93, to prove that you are once again a suitable member of our society. The only way for you now to regain the respect of your fellows is to publicly acknowledge your shortcomings. Go to the rostrum and confess. We will tell you what to say. They're right, of course. They're right, of course. Quite right. Quite right. I'm inadequate. I'm inadequate. 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 Disharmonious. Disharmonious. So next up is the episode, A Change of Mind. And a bit of context before this, before Guy takes it over. McGowan almost canceled this one right up to the last moment. I listened to the writer's commentary on this, and this was, well, he had written other things and he'd written books. This was his first screen credit. So he, he was mm. really sort of on tenterhooks, as we say, while he waited to see if McGowan would accept it. Mm-hmm. McGowan had a couple of objections that I'll mention as we go along, and he felt in classic McGowan style that the only way to make the episode work was for him to fire the director (laughs) at the last minute and directed himself under a pseudonym. So classic prisoner episode (laughs) Uh, with that, take it away, guy. Well, it starts off with number six in his little forest gymnasium that he's constructed for himself. He's doing his workouts, swinging on the pull-up bar and, Punching the punching bag and all that. And two Did guys. you notice these are the exact same shots they used? There's some other episode where they had this. Uh, it was probably Chimes of Big Ben. And they use the exact same shots with the same double who doesn't look anything like him. Oh. <laughs> so it was just kind of amusing. I didn't catch that. I did recognize the gym from another episode, but I didn't catch the substitution. These two guys from the village, they show up at the gym and they assault him, but they build up to it first by telling him that he's being antisocial by having his own gym out here in the woods. And it's kind of ironic because really they're the antisocial ones. They just (laughs) came to pick a fight. They're obviously spoiling for a fight. Yeah, and a little unusually for the show, this doesn't seem to be part of a plot or anything. These just seem to be two guys who are jerks, and we're going to see them be jerks again later in the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, although it wouldn't surprise me at all if somebody did put them up to it, but uh, they could very well just be doing it for the fun of being jerks. An interesting thing about the ensuing fight is that since number six has various ropes hanging around in his gym to climb on and so forth, Everybody involved in the fight takes a turn swinging on the ropes during the fight. Both number six and his adversaries, they just can't resist him, it seems. Nobody ever expects the rope. (laughs) (laughs) And in the end, number six doesn't knock them out, but he does drive them off. They slink away and they say, you'll face the committee for this. (laughs) And sure enough, the very next scene is number six sitting in a waiting room about to face the committee. There's a loudspeaker that's letting the people in the waiting room hear the proceedings going on in there. That gives us a little helpful narration. It explains that the person sitting next to him, the woman who's crying next to him uh, incessantly, is number 42, and she's constantly depressed, and that's kind of antisocial. She's one of the people to be brought in. The person currently on trial is number 93, and his trial ends, and his punishment 
is pretty convenient for him, actually, because it doesn't involve a lot of moving about. All he has to do is come out into the waiting room and confess his inadequacy to everybody waiting there. <laughs> well, it is like recorded and broadcast, I think. So my assumption is that everyone in the village is hearing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they do, I think, mention later on that the whole process is broadcast. When number six's turn comes up, it turns out that all the members of the committee who are, it's the dome room that we see in every episode in one role or another. All the committee members in here, they all have striped shirts, which we've seen, and they all have top hats, which we've seen. But I'm not sure how often we see people with striped shirts and top hats. And it's kind of dumb looking, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, normally the top people with top hats have a nice black suit on, which works very well with it. But yeah, this is just kind of weird. <laughs> But they all have adopted the fashion anyway. The committee chair asks number six if he's completed his questionnaire, and uh, he affirms that he has and then tears it up. <laughs> what I love about this is it's so typical of that uh, you know, questionnaire when you go to some new doctor or whatever that you have to fill out in the beginning. It's clear that mm -hmm. that's exactly the deal here, yeah. Oh, yeah. And number six, he's very insouciant, I think is the word I'd use during this meeting. He, he's got his... Smug turned up to 11. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to watch. And the committee chair says, we deplore your spirit of disharmony. And as the committee chair is lecturing him, number six is darting his eyes around the room. Uh, it's like he's trying to catch someone doing something naughty out of the corner of his eye. The whole meeting is uneventful. The committee <laughs> decides to take a tea break and they're going to reconvene. <laughs> But as number six walks back to his apartment, he finds that things in the village have changed ever so slightly. People are giving him the cold shoulder. He even gives a friendly village-style greeting to one of the ladies passing by, and she just blows him off. And when he goes to the tally-ho stand and gets his copy, it says, it has a headline, Number six for further investigation. So <laughs> Which is one of those headlines that had to have been written in the five minutes between him leaving the uh, <laughs> room in there unless it was done ahead. But I'll say, and, and we'll see it later, a really surprising thing in this episode is that he reacts very strongly to the social isolation. You wouldn't necessarily predict that. You'd think he'd mm -hmm. just be fine. You know, he could deal with that. But he's, he's not happy with that. Yeah. As the episode goes on, there will be more scenes where it's he's just kind of alone and pondering his uh, his aloneness. So yeah, this is this is not the steel-spined secret agent that we're accustomed to. Mm. But he gets back to his apartment and he finds number two there waiting for him. And number two is well, it, to me at least, it seems he's pretty obviously just. BSing because he says to the village and its committee, you are merely citizen six. If the hearings go against you, I am powerless to help you, which I think is a total crock. But, uh, but that's what number two that's, says. You know, anyway. the village is all about democracy. We've definitely learned <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And then number 86 enters the apartment. She's a young lady who, uh, later on will find out she's actually a doctor or technician or something like that. But she says she's been posted in the past for being disharmonious. And it isn't clear exactly what posting is, but presumably it's something you can recover from, which is 
not what all disharmonious people do. <laughs> My take is that posting means you've been identified and you have to go through the process that number six just did, where you fill out the paperwork and go talk to the committee. Mm-hmm. You might still be sort of found innocent or, or, you know, have to do a lesser penalty or something. That was my take on it is posting is sort of the beginning of the process. And then if they find that you're doing things the right way, maybe you sort of get to go back to normal. Yeah, that makes sense. And just an interesting side note, I have no idea if it's relevant or not, but 86 is Maxwell Smart's code number in, (laughs) uh, in Get Smart. And that show actually was on the air at the time when this was made. So I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. There were so many spy shows going on and, and I would, I, you know, I'd love to at least sample Get Smart at some point in our podcast, but it's funny that if you think about it, you know, The Prisoner is a comment on these spy shows and Get Smart is a comment on these spy shows. So they were actually kind of doing a similar thing. Yeah. In some way. (laughs) (laughs) Very different approach. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, you know, yeah, uh, McGowan was never going to do the nude bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In fact, that's one of the things the writer complained about was, you know, of the of the issues McGowan had with the script. One was that he ends up kissing a woman that we see later, and McGowan was like, the kissing has to go. <laughs> that's where, where, you know, I mean, over and over again, this happened. So it seems like nobody had put together a Bible or something saying this isn't this. These are the things that McGowan is not going to accept because writers kept putting them in the scripts. <laughs> we see uh, number two in his uh, domain with the supervisor. And number two says females. <laughs> He's a. Uh, We'll find out throughout the episode that he's not real impressed with females in general. He goes on to say, if that woman makes one mistake, we could lose number six. At this point, I'll just say that there's surely no way this disdain for women could come back <laughs> as poetic justice at a later I would say I was a little concerned because in addition to this, we have something in here where number six uh, later says he hates it when girls don't know how to make tea. And I felt like, wow, this episode's being, you know, really harsh on women. Well, listening to the commentary with the writer, I mean, he wrote it that way. He understood that it was misogynistic and that he was creating misogynistic characters. So, you know, I have a lot more time for it when when it's part of what's going on rather than as we've seen in some other things that we've watched where it seems to just be an acceptable part of the, the world. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, it, it it didn't really, uh, you know, I, I think you may react more sensitively to that sort of thing than I do. But, uh, but you know, I mean, it's well, it's good to get the poetic justice, I, I, right. or I, if there is any. I'm not saying there will be. <laughs> I like to say that I don't approach older stuff with, you know, social justice things. But I have to admit, I do find myself reacting to, to stuff. So, oh, you sure. know, I at least notice it. Let's put it that way. Oh yeah. Well, that's the that's the point of uh, getting involved in art is to evoke some kind of you know emotion right. generally. And and I think between this and the other thing I'm thinking of, which is an episode will come out long in the future for us, is the interesting difference in these older ones is that sometimes yes, the people involved who were making it knew what they were doing and they knew that they were creating these characters who were being say misogynistic, but they didn't feel the need for better or for worse for the show itself to comment on it. Right. It's almost like Mm -hmm. you, 
you have to make your own decision about that. It's, you know, and sometimes it's the heroes of the show who are acting like jerks. So number 86 had told number six that he was going to have to go to both a group meeting, which a, a social group, she calls it. And then there'll be a medical exam after that. <laughs> so now she and he are at the group meeting and he's, uh, he's, he's being a little mischief maker. Uh, he's just, uh, making little amusing comments. He's clapping his hands and doing all kinds of obnoxious things to distract from the meeting. Number 42, who we last saw sitting next to him in the waiting room, crying. She's not crying now, and in fact, she's a little disgusted with him because she's trying to change. She's taking advantage of this meeting to become a better citizen of the village, and he's, he's sabotaging it. And the, the people in attendance uh, start to gang up on him, and they start yelling phrases. They yell, rebel, reactionary, disharmonious. <laughs> uh, you know, they have a, a, a stockpile of five or six go-to words that they keep yelling at him. And he just stalks off. And number 86, you get a little shot of her <laughs> sitting there, not looking pleased. She doesn't actually do a face palm, but you know that's what she's feeling. <laughs> a couple of things for me about this scene. One is that they're outside in the woods somewhere, so it's a little unusual. It's not like in a in a room somewhere. Mm -hmm. Also, they have another one of those cases of unusual diversity here where the first person we see is Asian, maybe Korean, I'm not sure, but I think that the reason they cast that person here again, as they're trying to call back to the Chinese cultural revolution. So right. they wanted to have an Asian here. And I, on one hand, I appreciate it. And again, getting back to my social justice thing, it would be nice if they didn't only cast black actors or Asian actors at times when it, you know, they wanted to make a particular point. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, have a more general presence would be nice. But uh... yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, I thought of that in this scene when, when they're doing that yelling of all the rebel reactionary, all that, because the, the cultural revolution, they had what they called struggle sessions, which was basically uh, go get abused by your fellow communist sessions. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, this is very much in line with that sort of thing. Number six walks away from that meeting, but not very far because there's a man in a lab coat waiting for him with one of the village wagons to take him for a drive. He takes him to the hospital for his medical exam. The doctor there tells him, number six, that he's fit for any contingency. Number six replies, anything specific in mind? <laughs> And number six is free to go to from free to go then. And as he leaves, he peeks through the window in the door to the aversion therapy room. And we've we've seen him peek through this window before. At one point, there were about ten people in there lined up a, along the wall in straight jackets. This time, it's a single man uh, sitting in a chair, and he's watching a film. And we see the film that he's watching, or an outtake from it, just a few few moments. First, we see some shots of Rover, and he's terrified by that. Then we see number two, and he's laughing at that, not, not scornfully, almost kind of combination of delightedly and hysterically. And then we see just the word, just the text, unmutual. And that seems to terrify him again. And I think this is the first time we've 
we've seen this word unmutual in the episode, but uh, I guarantee it won't be the last. <laughs> in fact, as he turns away from the window, he goes to talk to a man out in the hallway, and this man is, something's a little off about him. And he has a little round scar on his temple just above the corner of his eye. And this man says he was one of the lucky ones, the happy ones. He was unmutual. And it isn't quite clear where the man is going with that or what he means by why he was lucky or happy, but it's some, something to keep in mind because he, he pops up again later. Mm. So now we're back in the committee chamber, and the social group has reported on the awful debacle that number six <laughs> made of that. The report leaves the committee no choice but to classify number six as unmutual. So for a term that was just introduced a minute or two ago, we're suddenly <laughs> hearing a lot of it. Furthermore, they inform number six that if there are any more complaints, they'll have to recommend him for instant social conversion, which sounds nice. <laughs> so number six, after that, he gets to leave the committee. He goes back to the tally hole cart. And this time the newsboy just walks off. He doesn't even say a word. It's just as soon as number six comes up to the cart, he just stalks away. Number six pulls off a sheet of tally-ho for himself and begins to read. And as soon as he begins reading, the PA system comes on with an announcement that number six has been declared unmutual until further notice. And sure enough, when he looks at the headline on the tally-ho, <laughs> it says number six declared unmutual. So uh, it's pretty much unanimous that he's unmutual. <laughs> and the PA further instructs the citizenry that any unsocial incident involving number six should be reported to the appeals subcommittee. He gets back to his apartment, and he has a kind of a worried look. It's, uh, that may not be the exact right word, but he doesn't look cheerful at any rate. Mm -hmm. He picks up the phone and there's no, no dial tone and no operator. He, mm -hmm. uh, he says hello a few times and no response. It's like the phone just isn't responding to him. And the appeals subcommittee appears at the door. They're a small group of women. I'm not sure what it is about them. Maybe it's the way they're dressed, but they, they kind of seem like, Harper Valley PTA busybody <laughs> types. Yeah, a lot of them are on the heavier side, which I think they're using to kind of provide that sort of stereotype, and, and they're definitely busybodies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and number 42, who we last saw in the struggle session, she's now on the committee, so she's coming along very well, <laughs> or, or mm -hmm. you know, going to hell, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Number six only has sarcastic remarks for the committee, so the chairwoman says it's clearly premature to look for contrition in the poor creature. <laughs> we cut over to number two with the supervisor again, and number two tells him, now let's see how our loner withstands real loneliness. Mm -hmm. Apparently, it's affecting number six because we get a view of him in the forest, not, not, at his, not at his forest gymnasium, but just kind of wandering in the forest. He sees a flock of migrating geese. Uh, it's just, just a, maybe a half minute or a minute of uh, kind of number six looking melancholy 
pondering his his yeah. lot. He has some <laughs> sticks in his hand that he's kind of breaking, and then as he leaves, he sort of slaps some of the bushes in a resigned way. Again, it's just yeah, really clear that this social isolation is is getting to him. Yeah, yeah. His next stop is the old folks' home, the tables that are set up on the lawn in front of it. He's come here for a coffee instead of the cafe. I didn't realize, I don't think I've ever seen a waiter at the old folks' home before, mm-hmm. but there is yeah, one Yeah, they're here. probably kind of mixing the cafe and that for this one, yep. Yeah. But when he orders a coffee from the waiter, the waiter ignores him and walks away. And in fact, the waiter has a tray that I think it might have cups of coffee on it. So it might not be just a minor... <laughs> snub it might be a fairly big obvious snub and as soon as the waiter walks away other people sitting at the nearby tables they get up and walk away from their tables and they gather a little ways away in a group and they give him the stink eye from a distance (laughs) they just stand there looking disapprovingly so number six leaves without getting his coffee yeah, and I feel like uh, part of what they're sort of communicating to him is as long as you're here, we can't do our thing. We can't get our coffee. We can't, you know, so it, it's kind of like he's imposing this on them. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that could be, a, they could be not, not able to get service too. I, I just thought they were being generally disapproving, but there, <laughs> there could be actual pragmatic reasons as well. So number six gets back to his apartment. And the appeals subcommittee has shown up once again for him. (laughs) And number 42 is not crying. And uh, in fact, she is rather judgy in this case. She (laughs) says, regarding those people at the cafe who had such hurtful gazes, she says, they are socially conscious citizens and are provoked by the loathsome presence of an unmutual. To which number six (laughs) responds, they are sheep. And uh, I got to side with him on this one, I think. <laughs> the chair lady of the subcommittee says there's but one course open to them, and they leave. Number two calls number six, so apparently the phone isn't completely dead. <laughs> and number six says he, he knows what's going on. He's being used as a scapegoat. You know, he's just the guy that the village can blame all its problems on. And number two has to say about the scapegoat remark, he says, after conversion, you won't care what it is. Mm. He goes on to further say, what would be lasting, he says, is isolation of the aggressive frontal lobes of the brain, which at first we take to mean, or I took to mean a lobotomy, and it's something along those lines, but not quite that. Yeah, there is an unfortunate true history here where there were some psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever, in I think the 50s, who got really enamored with lobotomies and would, there was one guy in particular who popularized it, and he, and I remember, I think this happened to one of the Kennedy family, the um, young woman who had some troubles. He lobotomized her like at a party. Like he would just say, oh, I'll, you know, because all of what was involved was just essentially taking a wire, putting it up through the eye, you know, above the mm. eye and then severing some of the connections. So you could actually, if you knew what you were doing, you could do it sort of anywhere at any time. And, and this guy would just do, go around doing this to people. Mm. And it's one of okay. the kind of, you know real stains on <laughs> psychiatry and such that that, yeah. that this happened yeah 
No kidding. You said he did it at a party? Yeah, like, oh, I'll take care of this person. And, <laughs> yep. Oh, that's a, that's a hell of a party trick. Wow. Yep. Huh. Well, in this case, uh, number six isn't going to get something quite so drastic, but it's going to put them through some inconvenience at any rate. <laughs> the public address system invites all staff psychologists and psychiatrists to come and observe number six's conversion on the closed circuit TV in the hospital. So that's pretty much established that that's going to happen. The appeals subcommittee returns just as number six goes to sit out on his patio and enjoy the day. <laughs> and the chair lady says, just in time for the procession. And what the procession is, is she proceeds <laughs> to beat him with an umbrella. <laughs> and a few of the others get in the act and the yep. mob, mob drags him to the hospital. At the hospital, he's injected with a tranquilizer and a group of doctors gathers to watch the procedure in a separate room on the closed circuit TV. We get a few minutes of number 86 explaining this process <laughs> in quite a bit of detail. It involves a... We are using standard equipment. Unit containing quartz crystal is activated by a variable electromagnetic field from these high-voltage condensers here. The crystal emits ultrasonic sound waves, which are bounced off the parabolic reflector here. Various stuff and how they tune it uh, and locate the exact spot underneath oh. the skin. So there's a story here. So the number one thing that McGowan objected to in the script was that the writer had initially described more realistically how they would do this lobotomy by taking these knives and, you know, going through the skull and, and, and mm. stuff. And, and, and he admits that McGowan was completely right to say, this is really over the top. You know, we can't mm. have knives going into my skull and all this stuff. <laughs> <for this." laughs> and so, and he said, well, it'll just be on video or, you know, it'll be a fake or whatever. But McGowan was like, no, we can, you know, and that's where he was ready to kill the script over this scene because really? he says this, this doesn't work. And so the writer called up his brother, who's a psychiatrist who was annoyed to be interrupted in the middle of his workday and said, what can I do with this lobotomy? Is there some way I can do this that would work with them? And his brother came up with something based on a real procedure where they would use light or essentially lasers or whatever to do it. So to some degree, what I, something I think that for a viewer makes no sense. We don't, as you're saying, we don't need all this explanation. We know that, oh, here's some equipment that's going to give them a lobotomy. We don't need to know anything more than that. But for the writer, it was important because he was trying to deal with McGowan's objection and he was trying to make it realistic. So he's using mm. all of this uh, stuff from his, his brother. <laughs> huh, interesting. <laughs> And they, they may have had a few minutes to fill also because it's an involved explanation. I mean, it was kind of interesting. I actually sort of enjoyed it. I'm not complaining too much, but it wasn't really necessary to go that much into it. <laughs> anyway, after the whole thing, number six wakes up with a Band-Aid on his temple, right where that guy he met earlier had a scar on his temple. Mm -hmm. Number 86 is going to be keeping an eye on him for a while. And the number six is 
acting kind of cheerful here, kind of dopey. And in the next to last episode of the series, when we saw him sort of revert to childhood and he was <laughs> being led along by Leo McKern and eating his ice cream cone and all that, uh, this is kind of the same mood that he has, just kind of a wide-eyed innocence. And as he leaves the hospital, number six is greeted by an enthusiastic crowd of well-wishers. All is forgiven now that he's had his conversion therapy. They, uh... Yeah, this reminded me of something I saw recently on a YouTube thing. You know, there there was this kind of famous cult thing in the last few years where there were these actors from the show Superman and such who had been became part of this sex cult and everything. It was very bizarre. One of their techniques when they wanted to recruit someone, which I think is uh, very smart and I could see it working on me in the right circumstances, is they would do, I think they called it like love bombing, right? So they would invite like an actress or something mm. to an event and then they would all surround her and talk to her about how great she was and give her this huge amount of affirmation, which would make it mm. much more likely that that person would then continue on with them and go to the next step and maybe eventually kind of join their cult, right? So I felt no, this was sure. the same thing. He comes out and, and everyone who has been walking away from him and disdaining him, now they're open arms and welcoming him and, and being friendly. And you can see how powerful a control thing that could be. Oh, sure. Sure. Especially since we've seen him uncharacteristically dejected uh, yeah. by the loneliness or the abandonment, et cetera. So these, uh, these well-wishers who, whose intentions are completely honest and above board line the <laughs> streets and shout encouragement to him as the, one of the village wagons drives him home. Number two is there at his apartment waiting for him. Number 86 tells number six he's tired and should lie down in his living room recliner. While he's lying there, he's just kind of uh, passive, you know, not his usual sarcastic, you know, all-knowing self. <laughs> he watches her make tea and sees her drop a pill in it, and he he retains enough sense to know that's not a good sign. Yeah, the writer really had an issue with this, because the writer felt like, I mean, literally like five minutes ago, he theoretically had a lobotomy, and now he's sort of seeing things and figuring it out and putting together what's going on. And that wasn't how the writer did it. That was McGowan's choice. And the writer really felt that they should have had a couple scenes here before he started to figure things out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have made sense. I guess the ultimate, ultimately it turns out, well, I, I won't give it away, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's, um, there is an explanation for why he might understand there's something bad happening here, but uh, you'd think it, he'd have to wait a little longer. Mm. Anyway. Realizing that he could be in trouble here, he asks her monosyllabically, he just uses single words, he asks her to get a blanket from the wardrobe in his bedroom. Asked, well, he yells at her. He's like, yeah, he does, <laughs> yeah, he yells, uh, yeah, actually, he calls it a rug, actually. <laughs> yeah, right. Rug! <laughs> but, uh, while she goes to get it, he dumps the tea that she's prepared into a plant vase next to him. She comes back, sees the tea cup is empty, and she's satisfied. She leaves, and he apparently drifts off to sleep, and 
Number two then wakes up number six, or he may have been feigning sleep because he wasn't drugged after all because he discarded it. Well, although he was drugged earlier during the procedure. Well, yeah, that's why he's acting so loopy in the first place is he was earlier drugged and that's why that's why it, it might have made sense to have some intervening scenes before all this happens. But yep. uh, anyway, the way that number two wakes number six is by stroking the Band-Aid <laughs> on his temple, which is an unusual way to wake somebody. <laughs> but it works, and he wakes up. And number two says it's time for the talk he promised, which he had promised earlier, and I don't think I mentioned, but not a big deal. It's time for this talk. Now that all your aggressive anxieties have been expunged, he wants to discuss what he refers to as the trivia of your resignation. So, same thing as all the other number, well, most of the other number twos want. Mm -hmm. But number six is unable to focus or is feigning being unable to focus. Probably a little bit of both because he's still a bit drugged. And number two leaves him to give him time to collect his thoughts. Once he's alone, number six gets up and heads to the bathroom and verifies that he does have a scar underneath the Band-Aid. It's additional evidence that he has some presence of mind. And it turns out number two and number 86 are watching on the big screen. And number 86 says, already he suspects. <laughs> so even she's um, commenting. <laughs> but, but I wanted to say here, I think number two says, oh, well, that scar is real enough. So he'll, you know, he'll be fooled, which turns out to be a total <laughs> lie. I mean, that scar disappears immediately. Of course, it's in no other episodes, but even in this episode, you never actually see the scar after this. It's just totally yeah. gone. Although the, the scar doesn't look that bad. It looks like, you know, if, if you maybe had abraded the very top layer of skin. Right. You know, now, the other guy he saw had a really, really obvious scar, right? So they're oh, kind of. Oh, yeah. It was all puckered up. And yeah. Right. It was, That's why I'm saying it makes no sense. And number two is saying, oh, that scar is for real. And it's like, yeah, no, it's not. It just disappears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now number six is uh, kind of stalking around his kitchen, acting tense, even though number 86 says the drugs should preclude such reactions. He's getting more restless by the moment. Number two says he's seen what he thought was the operation. So at this point, he's making it clear that there wasn't really the operation. Mm. It was just a, a ruse. He says he should be convinced. Repeat the dose. So, number 86 heads back to the apartment and makes another cup of tea. But number six doesn't want it. He's not impressed. And he says, as you mentioned earlier, he says, I can't stand girls who don't know how to make a decent <laughs> cup of tea. But, of course, he has, he has good reason for, for saying it, if, if not necessarily uh, phrasing it in such a chauvinistic manner. <laughs> <laughs> but he has good reason for saying it because he knows that she's trying to dope him up. Right. He decides he's going to give her a brewing lesson, and he, he does this in a very non-lobotomized manner, <laughs> just as that previous sentence he said. Uh, as he talks, he's, uh, he sounds like a man in pretty full possession of his faculties. And I'll say, uh, he, you know, he walks through a whole bunch of steps for preparing tea. And to my knowledge, those are all valid steps for how a British person would prepare tea. Like, you know, warming the teapot early, 
all that sort of thing. There's, you know, mm-hmm. those are all classic stuff that us uh, ugly Americans normally wouldn't bother to do, right? Oh, <laughs> we, yeah. We just take a Lipton thing and throw it in there and we're done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pop it in the microwave and you're good to go. Yep. <laughs> so one of the steps is he asks her to pour milk. And as she pours the milk, she drugs one of the cups. But then he asks her to get sugar from the cupboard and he swaps the cups. <laughs> and number two is watching this on the big screen, but he doesn't seem to notice the swap, which is a good thing. And soon the drug takes effect. The cup swap worked just as planned. And soon number 86 is obviously stoned. <laughs> but number two, watching this, he seems to think she's just acting like a stupid woman. And one <laughs> clue to this is that he says, stupid woman. <laughs> And so he uses the PA system to summon her back to his office immediately. And he does think, in the meantime, that number two surely is drugged. Uh, he, he doesn't know that any anything off is going on here. Uh, and so when number six goes to step outside his apartment, number two thinks that a walk outside is just what he needs. Mm-hmm. And number six runs into the man that he met in the waiting room, the one with the scar on his temple. Uh, Number six asks him if he feels different after the social conversion, and the man replies, you should know. (laughs) The man, from the way he acts, he he seems to still be able to speak reasonably coherently, but there's definitely something off about him. Yeah, and he does a lot of laughing in kind of a cynical manner that just seems to imply that, of course, this doesn't cure anything. You know, I mean, you don't know exactly what he's saying, but... It doesn't seem to be everything is, you know, sunshine and, <laughs> and unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's ambiguous as to exactly what's going on in his head, but it's not entirely kosher, whatever it is. <laughs> so number six returns to his forest gym, his fortress of solitude, I guess. The two thugs who kicked off <laughs> all the unfortunate events. I got to say, these guys really seem to have a thing for him. I mean... Yeah. How would they randomly be here at this two times that he's here? And again, as we said, they don't seem to be part of a plan or anything, so they just really like harassing him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't seem to be, although we we can't be certain with number twos. Those number twos are a wily lot, so I don't know. But anyway, these two thugs have come back, or, or do come back while he's there, and they start getting rough once again. It doesn't matter to them. They they know that he's been through the conversion process, and they don't care. They just want to. And initially, he can't quite punch them. He's having to sort of pull his punches, and he's sort of tentative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he's a little hesitant at first, but but it doesn't last long. Uh, Very quickly, he uh, gets back into secret agent mode, and uh, he knocks both of them out. And it seems to me that this is where he he really starts to realize that the procedure he went through didn't do a whole lot to him. And this is where the writer wanted him to realize that. He he thought mm. it shouldn't have co- happened until now. Yeah. Okay. So as he's walking through the forest, he meets number 86, gathering leaves. <laughs> Somehow this is supposed to be preparation for her report to number two. Maybe she's building a bouquet or something. Yeah, she wants to impress him or something. I mean, she's totally, <laughs> as we said, she's totally high. And her feeling is, well, if she puts together some flowers and leaves, that's going to be a good thing for number two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
We get a glimpse of number two, who has lost track of number 86 while she's out picking leaves. And once again, he expresses his uh, disdain. He, he's worried that she's going to botch everything, and he uses the public address system to summon her once again. But before she goes off, she, she intends to go to him right away, but number six says he has something to show her first. He takes off his wristwatch, and he does the old hypnosis trick, which works yeah. every time. <laughs> yeah, and I think the writer was a little critical of this. Apparently, this was something McGowan inserted that he felt was a little silly. But ah, so, so McGowan really gave it a working over then. Uh, yeah. He, he changed yeah. quite a few things. Okay. So the hypnosis works on her very quickly. And the first step the, that he takes is to get her full report as she would give it to her superior. And her report confirms that the procedure was a sham. They didn't really use the crystal rays to lobotomize him. And, and I have to say, this, this is one of my main criticisms of this story, which is that what's the point? You know, somehow convincing him he was lobotomized was supposed to make him more and they combine convincing him he was lobotomized with actually drugging him so he feels lobotomized. But this procedure was somehow supposed to make him more willing to spill his guts versus just drugging him and getting him to do it. I don't understand how this was supposed to work, right? What What's the point of this sham? <laughs> A good question. I You know, maybe maybe it was... That the isolation and alienation in conjunction with the drugs would have. But again, you could have done those without that, right? I mean, it just, I don't know. I, I don't understand. I think the central plot point in all of this, for me, it just doesn't make sense. Right? Yeah, yeah, fair point. Yeah. I'm sure if I had a little while to think about it, I could come up with a bunch of BS justifications for it. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, we'll just move on. <laughs> So, number 86, still being drugged and hypnotized to boot, she's susceptible to orders from number six. He gives her orders for something to do at the four o'clock bells, but we don't get to hear what those orders are. <laughs> and I think this, uh, this is relevant to a, a theory that Ron is, that you have mentioned. The Scooby-Doo theory, times. right? <laughs> <laughs> or if the... Uh, I believe it's if the if the plan is described, it's going to fail. If the plan is left hidden, then it's going to succeed. Yep. <laughs> so we'll find out if that holds here in just a moment. Number six goes from the woods to number two's place, and he he puts on a show of being very happy with his new lobotomy and. <laughs> uh, or as new drugs, as the case may be. The old Dr. Demento show, right? I'd rather have a bottle in front oh. of me than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Daddy, what's a frontal lobotomy? Well, son, you know how the pressures of life can cause people to do crazy things. And if a person does too many crazy things, then that person is crazy. Sometimes you can keep yourself from going crazy by doing things to relieve tension, like drinking or having sex. But if craziness goes too far, sometimes the only thing left to do is to cut out that part of your brain that makes you crazy. That kind of brain surgery is called a frontal lobotomy. Maybe this song will help you understand what I mean. 
brothers We went down different paths Jimmy always listened to my mother And me, I never liked to take a bath As we grew and tumbled through adulthood The pressure caused emotional drain And now I'm slowly dying in the bottle And Jimmy has to live with half a brain Yes, me, I got a bottle in front of me And Jimmy has a frontal lobotomy Just different ways to kill the pain the same But I'd rather have a bottle in front of me Than have to have a frontal lobotomy I might be drunk, but at least I'm not insane <laughs> Yeah, well, in this case, it seems like number six would rather have the latter <laughs> He says he says to number two, to think I resisted for so long, which is kind of like uh, the ending of 1984, you know, oh, stubborn, mm-hmm. self-willed exile from the loving breast. <laughs> so he, he wants to tell his secret, but not just to number two. He wants to tell it to everyone. <laughs> he lays it on thick enough that number, number two is convinced he wants to inspire others to reveal their secrets. And he wants to thank them for the total social conversion. It's a very, very impassioned plea, you know, not not too impassioned because he's still kind of mellow from the drugs and all that. But, you know, it's convinced, convinces number two anyway. So number two gets on the PA system once again, summons everyone to the village square. And this is the place that has the big fountain and the balcony that number twos like to speak from and all that so number six gets up on that balcony and uh, he addresses the people of the village and he praises number two very highly. He says some real good things about him, but he's interrupted by the bell tower chiming four o'clock. <laughs> and at this point, number 86 comes to the front of the crowd and she has a confession to make. <laughs> Her confession is that number two is unmutual. <laughs> so usually confession is about things that you did, but uh, this case it's number two who is unmutual. Hearing this, the crowd begins denouncing number two. Apparently, they they really trust number eighty six. Yeah, I mean, she didn't even provide an explanation or anything, so they're just happy to go with it. That's <laughs> 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 fun to denounce, denounce people. Yeah. <laughs> While this is all starting up, uh, number six tries to urge the crowd, you know, he tries to get in a few words about how they should embrace their freedom and individuality and principled things that number six tends to stand for. But of course the mob doesn't want to hear any of it because they're, <laughs> they're just having fun denouncing. So number two flees at, at first he's just walking away and the mob is sort of listlessly pursuing him. But as he as he flees more, he speeds up and the mob speeds up and the mob is chanting, unmutual, unmutual. <laughs> yeah, and, and my personal slogan about this sort of thing, you know, Twitter mobs, etc., is those who are making the list this week will be on the list next week. <laughs> it yeah. happens over and over again. <laughs> yeah, we saw that happen to poor old Robespierre and, yeah. uh, and Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> And for the last scene, I'm not sure what it means, but it's very artsy, so I'll mention it. We see <laughs> we see the butler walking alone down the street with a black and white umbrella. I don't think it has any meaning. I think, and we've seen this in multiple episodes. I think sometimes they just don't know how to end, so they're like, "Why don't we have the butler do something?" <laughs> <laughs> 
Could be. It could also mean that, you know, the butler is usually number two's servant, so now he's walking alone because number two is out of there. Yep. And the episode is over. (laughs) Yeah. So, for having excluded this episode from the ordering, unlike The Dance of the Dead, this one doesn't particularly offend me, especially on <laughs> rewatching. It's just that, um, and, and some of the stuff, especially early on, is interesting. It's just that I don't find the number two particularly compelling. You know, I have this issue with the main plot point we talked about where it makes no sense to me why they're faking this lobotomy and what that's supposed to do. And all the almost everything in it I just find to be a lesser execution of themes that are better done in other episodes like Free For All and Hammer and Anvil and A, B, and C. Mm. And, and, and when I excluded this, I felt it added nothing particularly new to the series. On rewatch, I feel like I was half wrong. You know, I, I still mm-hmm. think the first part is true. I don't think the number two is particularly interesting. It's okay, but not, you know, mm-hmm. n- not one of our better number twos. Yeah. And I still have that plot issue with why are they faking this lobotomy and and what's that all about? But there is something unique to this episode for the rest of the series. And that is, this is the only episode that explores the village itself as an entity and going against number six. And it's, it's clearly a reference to the Chinese cultural revolution. And the writer talks about this in his commentary and disturbingly, the implications of that are back today fiercer than ever in China. Now people's lives have been gamified. So, you know, they use uh, constant video surveillance and they determine where, who people are associating with and what they're doing and they follow their social media and they literally give you these points. And if you lose points, if you lose social points, then you lose privileges. Like you might not be able to travel or you might not be able mm-hmm. to get a certain kind of job. So in that way, I think this is actually very relevant and, and something that I missed previously. So, you know, especially maybe we'll get into a little horse trading, you know, if it was this one versus Dance of the Dead, I'm, I'm much more mm-hmm. uh, amenable to this one going back on the list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, I, th- I think this one would, if we had to choose one or the other, that would be, uh, this one would be the one I'd choose, I think. I did enjoy the number two in the other one. I don't know. She, she, I mean, she came across as not a real personable number two. I think the actress probably was much more personable in person, but, it, but she had to come across as kind of severe or, you know, mm-hmm. unlikable, however you want to put it, for, for the role. But I thought she did a pretty fair job. And I, I didn't notice what you mentioned about the beginning of that episode where where she was not real into the introduction sequence. I didn't mm-hmm. spot that, which isn't to say you're wrong. It just didn't <laughs> register with me. Right. But, but yeah, if I had to choose one or the other and something that amused me in this is that the number, the number two in this episode kind of reminds me of Jim Sterling, who I've mentioned, <laughs> I've, I've mentioned him on our podcast before because there was James Sterling in one of the uh, Doctor Who episodes, but he's he's a video game critic, or I guess nowadays he's more of a video game company critic. But anyway, this number two just uh, occasionally the camera gets him at an angle where it reminds me of him, so that's kind of funny. Well, I will say I would be much happier with her as the number two in this episode. I didn't have a problem with her 
is number two, other than my little issue with her reading of the of the intro. So yeah. So we are going to go ahead and do these as two episodes. We're going to cover the next two that we didn't cover next time. And then we're going to revise our ordering, as we said. So come back. We will see you then. <laughs> <laughs> It, it occurred to me watching these episodes, and I don't think it's a very good theory, but it's a fun <laughs> theory, so I'm going to mention it. There's a show called The Blacklist, and I haven't seen a lot of it, but uh, I've seen some episodes. It's fun. The main character is fun. He's a guy who was deeply into the crime world, and the FBI got him, and the FBI is letting him have a fair amount of freedom in exchange for turning over all that he knows about all the personalities in the world of crime. And every episode is, you know, the criminal of the week. And uh, he's helping the FBI to catch him. So what I thought of is, what if, now we know that at the end, number six sees number one is himself, or somebody who looks a lot like him. It's not clear <laughs> how that all works out. But what if number six set up the village or took over the village to hunt down bad guys that he had learned about during his secret agent career. And he brought them in as wardens, or that is to say as the number twos, but they are actually the prisoners. <laughs> and he could, he could have gathered, you know, a lot of resources during his spy career, taken over the village, uh, enlisting aid like the butler, he could use all this wacky village technology to wipe his memory of all the preparation work that he had done and maybe plant some subliminal directives. Uh, <laughs> then he resigns in London and gets taken prisoner, and he can't tell the number twos why he resigned because he resigned to catch them. <laughs> well, that's that's a theory. I, I haven't put a lot of thought into it since it just occurred to me today, but... Uh, <laughs> Still, could bear further scrutiny, or perhaps, uh, perhaps I think probably uh, too much analysis of the show is uh, self-defeating. <laughs> but uh, well, given how the last two episodes went, I you know anything's possible. <laughs> 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 Be seeing you.